out there. You talked about Mohammed Bazoum of Niger. Mohammed Bazoum comes from a socialist party, but they have not been socialists for decades. They are basically caretakers for the United States, the French, and so on. U.S. has the largest drone base in the world in Agadez, Niger. These guys have become caretakers for the imperialist bloc. That's Vijay Prashad, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Vijay Prashad on Africa, from neoliberalism to independence. Almost every country in Africa was colonized by Europe. Today, while nominally sovereign, many of these countries are in the clutches of the big international banks. The old colonial masters, Britain and France, still have a foothold in Africa, but the U.S. has been pushing them aside, moving in to capture resources and markets. Washington has established an Africa command, deployed troops, and built a string of bases. But France won't let go of its grip on its former colonies. The coup in Niger, a former French colony, is not your run-of-the-mill coup. It must be understood in the context of widespread discontent with ruling elites and their collaboration with imperialism. Genuine independence is still far off for Niger and other countries in the Sahel region of West and Central Africa. To talk about these issues is Vijay Prashad. He's an internationally renowned historian and journalist. He's the director of Tricontinental and chief correspondent for Globetrotter. He's the author of many books, including Washington Bullets, CIA Coups and Assassinations. I interviewed Vijay Prashad in mid-August. He was at his home in Santiago, Chile. Welcome back to the program. So, salam alaikum. Walaikum as-salam. There are coups and there are coups. The one in Niger, ousting the elected government of Mohamed Bazoum on July 26, you say is different. How so? You make a distinction then between general's coups and colonel's coups. Explain what you mean. Well, look, we know that coups have a certain patina, a certain understanding in the consciousness. Um, For instance, if you go back in the history of the modern world since 1945, there have been a series of important coup d'etats. Let's take a part of the world I know very well. Take Pakistan. Pakistan wins its independence in 1947. We are also a decent liberal government, Liaquat Ali Khan leading the government. When the left started to make its noises, and that too not in a very loud way, the military entered. Um, there was a coup d'etat almost immediately. Now, Pakistan punctually seen generals' coups. Not only are these coups led by generals, you know, General Ayub Khan, General Yahya Khan, General Ziaul Haq, General Parvez Musharraf. It's not only that they are generals, but in a sense, they also represent the oligarchy of the country. They do a coup against the possibility of the diminishment of power of elites. So that when we see the coup of General Augusto Pinochet 50 years ago in Chile this year, 
Augusto Pinochet moves out of the barracks, not because his soldiers are unhappy, not because the rural peasantry is starving. It's not to save the country. It's to save the oligarchy in association with the United States. Those are general schools. And there are legions of them. You know, we can we can look at them over the last 60, 70 years, define number of them, you know, Ugo Banzer in Bolivia and so on and so forth. In Thailand, for instance, the generals coup repeatedly, uh, punctually, we see general schools. The coup of General Soharto in Indonesia in 1965 on behalf of the elites and so on. Then at the same period, there's a whole other set of coups taking place. How do we understand the coup led by Gamal Abdul Nasser? Now, is Nasser's coup the same as the coup led by Augusto Pinochet? I would say no. Even Muammar al-Gaddafi, 1969, Colonel Gaddafi, he's a colonel, not a general. These fellows do coups, what's going on? In my view, those people, those Gaddafis, the Nassers and so on, they represent sections of the population that are not able to have political power in society. And they are unhappy. There's no avenue for them. And these lower-ranked officers conduct a coup. They conduct a coup, sometimes, by the way, uh, merely because the troops haven't been paid. You know, the, the rank and file have not been paid. Often the reasons are extremely particular. They don't have a trade union. The coup is their trade union. But in many cases, they do a coup with a progressive agenda. The attempted coup, for instance, in Venezuela by Hugo Chavez in 1992 is also in that sense a captain's or colonel's coup. Hugo Chavez also leads on behalf of the rank and file. Why? Because the rank and file are people who come from the slums, people who come from peasant areas that have been completely discarded. Rank and file are people who come from peripheral towns where they've been without real jobs for a generation. This is what has been happening in the Sahel. When you look at the coups in Guinea, in Mali, in Burkina Faso, and in Niger, the people who've led the coup are often often very young men, born 1988, born 1980, very young men for what they're doing. Also, these are young people come from these discarded towns, old cattle market towns, rural areas where the commodity prices have collapsed and so on. They see their families suffering for generations, not just, you know, some immediate problem because of inflation due to the Ukrainian war or inflation due to the pandemic, nothing. Generations of suffering and struggle. They see their fellow soldiers misused by the French as cannon fodder in a war, what they think is an unnecessary war against Al-Qaeda, against these smuggling groups and so on. There are other ways to fight the war. They have been very unhappy with them. In that sense, this is not the same. You know, this coup in Niger, for instance, it's not the same as the coup that took place in Chile 50 years ago. This is not a coup on behalf of the French or on behalf of the Americans or on behalf of the elites of Niger. It's in fact a coup on behalf of the ordinary people, which is why it has received mass support you remember, David, when Muammar al-Gaddafi moved out of the barracks in 1969, not a shot was fired. I mean, the king had to flee the country immediately because mass support for the coup against the, the monarchy, against the so-called black hands of the monarch security services and so on. 
So that distinction to me is important. Now the question people can ask is, why didn't they use other mechanisms? Good luck with that in a country like, say, Niger or Mali. You know, about 20-some years ago, now more, 25, I interviewed Alpha Omar Konare. He was the president of Mali. And I asked him, you know, he was a liberal man, came from a socialist background. I asked him, are you going to be able to move an agenda in Mali? And he said, look, I've inquired of the Clinton administration to please give me a debt haircut. We can't deal with the debt that we are carrying in Mali. If we can get a haircut on the debt, I can try to solve the problem with the Tuaregs. I can try to solve the problem of the Fulani. Lots of internal problems in Mali, he said, but we need resources to solve it. We need proper transportation between the north and the south. A good road to Timbuktu would help. You know, they didn't have a good road from Bamako to Timbuktu. The Clinton administration refused. They said, you have to honor your debt. Konare was out. The liberals left. They couldn't take it. They couldn't have an agenda. The socialists withered. Bazoum, you talked about uh, Mohammed Bazoum of Niger. Mohammed Bazoum comes from a socialist party. You know, his party is a socialist party in name. It's called a party of socialism. But they have not been socialists for decades. They are basically caretakers for the United States, the French, and so on. U.S. has the largest drone base in the world in Agadez, Niger. These guys have become caretakers for the imperialist bloc. The young troops are frustrated. They don't have an avenue. There's no left formation. There's not even a right-wing formation in these countries. Politics has been desiccated, David. When I traveled there, I was very surprised to see how frustrated ordinary people were and how frustrated the soldiers were. And that's why... This is not a Pinochet coup. This is a coup led by young men who are desperate to save their country, but they really don't know how. In an interview you did with Black Power Media, you talked about the Sahel region in Africa and how it was adversely affected by the U.S.-France-NATO attack on Libya, which later drove jihadi groups into northern Mali and into parts of Algeria also. I should add... Libya today remains in complete chaos. But talk about the significance of what happened there. It's a fascinating terrain, David, because there's so much to unravel here. Let's actually start further south in the continent. Um, You know, for the last 30, 35 years, there's been a serious economic problem in Ghana, Nigeria. These are the big countries of West Africa. Serious economic problem. No easy exit. And Nigeria is an oil-rich state. Uh, It's a scandal. So large number of people from West Africa have wanted to migrate out of the region. These are mainly lower middle class people with some education. It's been hard to get away to migrate. You know, they've had to go by air to different places, raise lots of money, use different kinds of smugglers and so on. Park that point for a second, because that becomes really important to our story. Secondly, when the United States and France, particularly led by France, decided to destroy Libya in 2011, whatever, overthrow Gaddafi, destroy Libya, one and the same thing. The net accomplishment was the destruction of the Libyan state. Okay, Whether they intended it or not, that's what happened. Um, When they destroyed the Libyan state, forget the jihadis for a second, a doorway opens for mass migration from West Africa joining migrants from Syria and Afghanistan. They all showed up 
in the uh, coastal region of Libya waiting to take boats across the Mediterranean. So that was crisis number one after the destruction of Libya. That's the only crisis Europe saw. When Europe saw that crisis, they said, we can't afford to have our border north of the Mediterranean Sea. We've got to move our border south of the Mediterranean Sea. So first, they tried to militarize the coastline of Libya, working with horrendous mafia-type groups, David, holding people in cells, selling people for slavery. You remember these stories right in the years 2012, 2013. Now, of course, long forgotten. Europe worked openly. European coast guards colluding with mafia-type groups to prevent the boats from leaving. So first they moved the border from north of the Mediterranean to south of the Mediterranean. Then when the tide of migrants continued, they tried to move the border south of the Sahara. I interviewed people from the International Organization of Migration in Agadez, Niger, which is where the uh, drone bases met people, talked to them and so on. They said they feel more people die in the, in the Sahara than die in the Mediterranean. Crossing the Sahara is super perilous. You have to go from Agadez north to Sabah, Libya. You're crossing very dangerous terrain. There's really no good roads. All kinds of terrible things happen to people. So they feel more people die as far as their data is concerned, trying to cross the Sahara than to cross the Mediterranean. But this was, of course, something that people were not seeing. They were just seeing the boats. So they successfully moved the border south of the Sahara into the Sahel region. Now, here comes France. France sets up something called G5 Sahel, where they were effectively paying the countries of the Sahel, you know, from Mauritania out to Chad, to militarize this area to prevent migration going north. That was really a big intervention by France, backed by the U.S., why is there the world's largest drone base in Agadez? You ask somebody in the United States, they always say, oh, it's for Al-Qaeda. No, no, it's about the migration issue. They do surveillance to see where the migrants are going, interdiction of people moving northwards and so on. I'll come back to Al-Qaeda in a minute. The migration issue, which is the detritus of globalization, is the key to the French move south of, of the Sahara into the Sahel in such a big way. That's the other point is that this G5 Sahel is created. Now here, the European Union started to pay the countries of the Sahel to use artificial intelligence surveillance technology that is banned in Europe. I've raised this with people in the European Parliament saying, you please ask this question because just a month ago, the European human rights body, Euromed, published a study where they proved this, that, you know, they are using technologies banned in Europe, but used in the Sahel again for interdiction of migration. So they're using these technologies. Now, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda. Of course, there's Al-Qaeda. I mean, the jihadis moved out of Libya. They moved to southern Algeria. You remember these attacks that took place at oil installations in southern Algeria right after the NATO war. That was the first salvo. But what the Al-Qaeda groups did and what they're very good at doing is that they made an alliance with three other forces. Number one, they made a, an alliance with Tuareg uh, separatists in northern Mali who have been fighting for years against the Malian state. This is not a national liberation movement. 
this is a very elitist tuareg group that wants to dominate that region and keep it in their kind of tribal control it's not exactly a progressive force but nonetheless it exists al qaeda made a connect with them and the united states and france used the presence of al qaeda in this to say war on terror have to go and so france then directly intervenes in mali burkina faso 2013 um through operation barkhane so you've got g5 sahel to build this wall against migration you got illegal technologies being used there you have now an intervention of troops both into uh, burkina faso mali and to some extent niger and you have this huge us base in niger meanwhile france has old colonial um, exploits going on including the the leaching of uranium from from niger for generations um all of that protected now by military forces who say they are there to fight against al qaeda and the soldiers of the region have now said this is a joke our problem is not al qaeda our problem is you well uh, talk about the uh, uranium mines in niger which are mostly owned by french economic interests so they have a huge stake in the economy of that country and as you said they have military forces there they've been asked to leave by the new regime in niamey what's the likelihood of that happening so let's go to the the niger's uranium first you know the first major coup that takes place on african soil after 1945 is against the government of patrice lumumba in the congo and that was partly because the united states worried about a uranium mine in the congo which they which from which they harvested the uranium for the two bombs in hiroshima and nagasaki but this uranium mine in arlit which is in the northern part of niger toward the libyan border um, the town of arlit is garrisoned by the french it's like a french overseas territory okay but again let's wind around arlit because everybody now knows that one in three light bulbs in france is lit by the uranium of arlit but people may have forgotten something interesting about niger and uranium in the lead up to the illegal us war on iraq the bush administration made a weird statement saying saddam hussein's government has made a deal with niger to get yellow cake uranium for their weapon of mass destruction and you'll remember that a state department official former state department official was sent to niger uh to go and see what the story was that was joe wilson that's it joe wilson when he came back to the us and said there's no evidence that mr hussein and the iraqi government getting uranium from niger his wife who was a cia agent valerie plame her name was leaked by the bush administration but what was interesting was when that story came out i remember thinking my god you think the people in the world are naive how is saddam hussein going to send an emissary to niger to try to get uranium that uranium is not controlled by the government of niger that uranium is controlled by the french government effectively it's a private french company france garrisons the yellow cake uh, mine how is this you know iraqi government going to make a deal you must think we are real idiots and in fact sorry to say but publications like the new york times washington post none of them raised this question is that niger has sovereignty that is to some extent compromised its economic sovereignty compromised 
because France controls the uranium, as you said. Now, this government, for the first time in the history of Niger, has said that we are no longer going to export uranium to France. In fact, they have said, we want to take control of the mines. Now, this is going to be interesting. Um, in many ways, the potential military intervention into Niger has much more to do with that uranium and to do with the question of migration than it has to do with anything else. They don't care about coups. When is the last time United States bothered about a coup? You know, when the U.S. coup took place in Bolivia against Evo Morales or against Mel Zelaya in Honduras or twice against Aristide, it's not like the U.S. ever bothered to say, hey, this is an illegal coup. Please bring back the democratically elected. You know, it's a joke. They are worried about the uranium in this case. But again, and we, I'm sure we'll come back to this, the U.S. doesn't want to intervene by itself and France doesn't want to intervene militarily. And this is an interesting situation. Um, yes, the uranium is there. Yes, this new government is saying it's our uranium. We want to not only sell it at prices that benefit us, but we want very much to have control over the percentage of profit that we get and so on. In your book, Washington Bullets, you recount the old joke. Why is there never a coup in the United States? Because there's no U.S. embassy in the U United States. I mean, <laughs> uh, you always got to see, are the lights on at night in the U.S. embassy? You know, if, if I'm a government, I wouldn't bother to try to do, you know, electronic surveillance of the U.S. embassy. Likelihood, you can't hear anything. But are the lights on in the offices? What are they up to? Are they busy like bees um, doing something nefarious? Who's going to see the ambassador and so on? Um, very interesting that you asked this question because question is, why is the United States been silent all along here in Niamey? Now, yesterday, the French president, Elise Palace, basically released a kind of statement saying the U.S. must join us in solidarity because the new government has said that French troops have to leave, the 1,500 French troops. They haven't said that Air Base 201, the U.S. base, has to be shut down. Um, this is an anti-French maneuver. It's not an anti-imperialist one as such. They are not calling for the U.S. to go. Um, that is interesting. And in fact, it may be intelligent. It might be too much for a small country like this to take on both the United States and the French at the same time. Looks to me, they're going after the French first. And this has created anxiety in Paris. So the U.S. Embassy in Niamey has been very quiet. And troops at Air Base 201 have been told to remain on base. Beyond that, we don't know. And I very much doubt that the U.S. will try to do anything in terms of a military intervention. It would be crazy. Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, also uh, described Niger, and I'm quoting, a model of democracy. Uh, in that Black Power Media interview, you said the region, the Sahel region, was not able to decolonize significantly against the French and were not able to get out from the claws of the International Monetary Fund. Why not? Well, one of the main reasons is when independence took place in 1661, when Charles de Gaulle finally said, okay, you guys 
can have your independence. We are not going to fight you like we're fighting the Algerians. You know, remember, the French focus was on defeating the FLN in Algeria. That was where they really put their guns in. They couldn't fight in Algeria and across the Sahel. Not that there was any indication that the Sahel leaders were going to go into armed struggle, but they were fierce in determination to have the independence. So when they got their independence, part of the deal was that they would continue to use a French currency. The kind of, it's called, it was called a colonial franc. You know, France uses the euro, uh, but the Sahel countries use the franc. And 50% of their reserves have to be held in the Bank de France. I mean, it's extraordinary that independent countries by treaty have to keep their reserves, foreign exchange reserves in a foreign bank, which then benefits because it has all this money and it earns interests on it and it's able to lend against it, stabilize its own monetary system, but not these countries. So that's the first way you can see no real sovereignty. Secondly, there was almost an open clause that when needed, French troops can return. And in fact, you know, in 2013, that is 53 years after independence of Mali, that kind of treaty was utilized for French troops to come back. Sovereignty was very much compromised. But the third reason is the real reason. How do you get out of being an exporter of raw materials? This is inclusive of Ghana. Exports gold, doesn't have gold reserves. You know, Britain has no gold, but it has gold reserves. How do you teach a child that? That here's Ghana, used to be called the Gold Coast, major producer of gold in the world, doesn't really have gold reserves. How do you explain to a child the illogical nature of the last two, three hundred years of history? Okay. How do these countries move from being single commodity exporters, you know, uranium, gold, whatever, um, to being more developed, diversified economies? You need credit. And to get credit, many of these countries went to the World Bank and the IMF and international creditors. Africa is drowning in a debt crisis. Countries are basically only able to service the debt. They are not paying the debt. They are paying the interest on the debt. I mean, they are buried under interest payments. Forget paying for the principal. They are still paying the interest because they're ballooning rates of debt. It's sovereign debt crisis in Africa is a catastrophe. You know, it doesn't get talked about enough. Tricontinental did a really good study called Life or Debt, where we looked at the totality of the sovereign debt crisis, the exposure of African countries to the euro bond market and so on. It's quite catastrophic. So you borrow to develop. Problem is, when you start building an agenda, you get knocked out. Um, and I don't want to sound conspiratorial about it, just sounding historical. So many years ago in the 1960s, Mali, Guinea, then Upper Volta, they all started to talk about building a federation. Because these countries, even though they're not small countries, you know, 20 million, 30 million at the time, they still felt if they built a big regional block, they could trade amongst each other. They were many of them landlocked countries and so on. That federation idea collapsed. And that was not a good thing. Secondly, at the collapse of the federation, just as the West Indian federation idea collapsed around the same time in the Caribbean, emerges one or two leaders who tried to drive a left agenda. 
most important and significant of course was thomas sankara of upper volta name then he changes to burkina faso tries to build an agenda talks about the debt crisis talks about agriculture talks about food sovereignty and so on and of course he is assassinated in 1987 so you know sovereignty is hard to piece together for these countries every time they try to stand up they are either killed or their projects are set aside it's interesting ibrahim traore of of burkina faso is now wearing the red beret of sankara i don't know what he's red i don't know what economics he knows or i don't know any of that but i do know that he comes from the soil where this sankaraism is just not disappeared it continues to inspire in burkina faso generation upon generation of young people you're listening to vijay prashad on africa from neoliberalism to independence this is independent alternative radio to get copies of this program call us 1-800-444-1977 again that's 1-800-444-1977 or go online our website alternativeradio.org that's alternativeradio.org events in niger have the editors of the new york times worried their front page story says i'm quoting niger coup may slow us fight against terror bolstering russia a loss of drone bases would be a blow now we mentioned that uh, niger has large amounts of uranium it has gold it also i learned from uh, chandra muzaffar of uh, global research it's sitting atop some of the largest aquifers in all of africa so it's is niger another case often found in the global south of rich country poor people you'll remember that in the last 7 8 years of his life mamar gadafi was trying to tap a giant aquifer that was there in the southeast of libya an underground lake he was trying to build this massive lake project and so on he's very moved to try to um, bring the water to the cities and and so this question of water is important uh, in many cases as mahmud mamdani had argued about darfur many cases the war in darfur was around water because of the desiccation of the sahel sahara coming south a question of water is paramount here but i think there's something else there when the new york times says what it says you see they used to always say al qaeda al qaeda al qaeda but interesting this is not credible anymore now the credibility is russia wagner group it's true for many years when these militaries found that the french were not able to defeat the insurgencies in their countries they turned for help to various groups including wagner but ever since wagner's implosion you know around the ukraine war and that dispute between prigozhev and putin ever since that wagner has not actually been such a major force in in the sahel region you haven't seen the russians as prominently as one had for a time it's not that they were not there they are there even in libya uh, but since the prigozhev putin issue wagner has not really been playing a big role so very interesting in my opinion is that the russians aren't such a big source of what's going on here now it could be 
that Russia will take advantage of this. Certainly that is possible. It could be other forces will take advantage of this. I must say, I'm, I'm not surprised that the New York Times is unwilling to actually note that the people of Niger might have their own agenda, that they don't have to move from one puppet master to the other, you know, from being under the thumb of the French and the U.S. to another thumb, you know, under the thumb of the Russians. Why can't you imagine that they want to have their own agenda? And in fact, it's interesting. When the issue of the military interventions was being discussed, um, on the table was the question from Mali and Burkina Faso saying that if you invade Niger, we are coming for you. We are also going to enter this conflict. There was no word from the Russians or from the Wagner group. This is the people of the Sahel sticking together. It's interesting that the New York Times simply doesn't see this. It instead just can't see the people of Niger as being in a way sovereign. Ekbal Ahmed, the legendary Pakistani intellectual activist, deplored what he called the pathology of power. That is to say, post-colonial states ruled by Western-educated elites, brown and black faces in high places with a strong military. So you can have your veneer of independence. You know, you could have your postage stamps, uh, your anthems, your flags, even streets named after some of your heroes. But when it comes to real independence, the sovereignty is not there. It rests in Washington, London, and Paris. You know, Franz Fanon called this flag independence. There's a bitterness to these critiques. You know, the, there's a bitterness because there was so much expected of freedom movements. But in a way, in many countries, they had to make a deal prematurely. You know, in India, Pakistan, in the Sahel region, they made a deal with the French. You know, they said, okay, go now and we'll make some economic adjustments for you in India. British go now, but we're going to protect British capital in India for some time. You know, these deals prevented maybe bloodshed. You know, maybe India would have gone the way of Malaysia or Kenya. You know, massive bloodshed, armed struggle and so on. Maybe that would have won some more sovereignty. I don't know. But the fact is that um, there was a a compromise made with the colonial elites, with the neo-colonial structures in the world. I'm not going to judge the compromise. That's a fact of history. That's why there's a bitterness in some of these phrases, flag independence, or, you know, this idea, you can have your postage stamp, but X, Y, Z. I mean, you know, for people like my grandparents, the postage stamp was a big deal. You know, no more King George or whatever. You know, now we've got Gandhi, and this is a big deal for them. Names in Delhi, for instance, all the statues of the colonialists were removed and moved to a graveyard just outside near Karolbar. It's a huge thing for people. But there was a compromise that there was a compromise that led to constrained sovereignty. Absolutely. Without a doubt. And in a sense, in this new phase, we're getting an attempt again. It's not the first attempt, you know, the whole Bandung project, the whole project of, you know, non-alignment, that whole project was trying to use the U.S. and the Soviets against each other to get a good deal, get a steel factory, have a dam, the Aswan Dam, and so on. Um, You know, we've been through this in a kind of zigzag way. It's not like, wow, for the first time, people are saying, let's have real sovereignty. Come on. This has been a struggle, a long struggle, long period of time. A lot of people lost their lives. 
already we've named Lumumba, we've named Sankara, but I mean, there's, you know, Allende can be named 50 years of the coup. Um, lots of struggle on this one issue of trying to establish full sovereignty. Now, can it succeed? I don't know. What I do know is that the world is changing now. Now, with the emergence of these other powers, India, Brazil, to some extent, South Africa, China, and so on, the emergence of these new powers has allowed countries to have choices. Now, they're not perfect choices. We're not talking about choice between capitalism and socialism, okay? We're talking about a choice between a debt austerity IMF agenda and investment for infrastructure. That's what the BRICS project is promising for people. That's the Chinese Belt and Road. We'll invest, you build infrastructure. That's it. We're not talking about some grand fork in the road. Here's the capitalist barbarism of Rosa Luxemburg and here's socialism. We're nowhere near there. What we are is at a fork in the road between the debt austerity pathway and the path for financing for infrastructure. That's what countries are given a choice for. I find it very silly when people debate, you know, well, you know, the, the BRICS thing is not socialist. Who said it's socialist? It's not socialist. But they are not the debt austerity IMF either. They are, they are saying investment for infrastructure. And why? For gain. Obviously, people are gaining. It's not that they are a big charity organization. But you have two different gain projects. One project gain where there's no benefit at all to the country that is taking the loan. That's the debt austerity project, where you're taking loans to pay off the interest of a previous loan. That's the IMF model. That's what Argentina has been eclipsed by. Second, you're saying, take a loan. We're not going to let you take this loan to pay off the debt. This loan is to build infrastructure. You need infrastructure in order for us to be able to have access to XYZ. But that's the nature of a slightly beneficial deal. Now, what countries are going to choose is up to them, but at least they have a choice. Steve Biko, the South African freedom fighter who was assassinated by the apartheid regime, said, I'm quoting, the most powerful tool in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. How to break away from the colonial mentality of subordination? Well, you know, I often say that political change is in a way pretty easy. You know, you can change a government. You can do it by the ballot box, Salvador Allende, after many, many tries. You can do a coup as the people in Niger, political change. Economic change is harder, but you can do it. You know, you can find a way to access resources. You can change the land relations, conduct land reform and so on. Then social change is harder still. You know, you have to create, say, creches so that women can go and go to university. They're not at home with their children because you've created a nursery, a social nursery. You create pension schemes. You create retirement policies. People get injured. That changes social life. Grandparents now can be grandparents, not just old people who have to work forever. You know, this changes society. The most difficult change, David, is cultural change. That, to me, is the most difficult change. And we don't spend enough time on it. Changing culture is hard. Um, and there, the realm of ideas is, is very much in there. So, for instance, we're talking about decolonization. Um, the idea of inferiority is so deeply in people's head through generation upon generation of the development of a culture. 
And even if people don't have the sense of inferiority, they have resentment uh, against other people thinking they are inferior. Uh, this creates its own psychological traumas and problems. It's a big struggle. There is no key, golden key, you know, uh, Willy Wonka's golden envelope to the chocolate. You open it and you win a prize. I wish you could just turn culture with a key, you know, make the culture change. It's a big struggle. Look at the question of patriarchy in South Asia. Okay. I mean, all the South Asian countries have had women as heads of government and have had heads of state. Sri Lanka had a woman head of government in the 1950s, you know, uh, Bandar Nayaka. She was there, I think, in the late 50s or maybe early 60s. Bandar Nayaka was there before many countries in the West had, you know, even 20% of women in parliaments and so on. Um, but yet, the tap root of patriarchy is so deep in South Asia. You know, still you can go into educated people's homes and so on. And the men are there in the living room and the women are, you know, I mean, this is a very big struggle and it is deep in our heads, you know, deep, deep in our heads. So I don't want to underestimate this and say it goes. What I do detect in the world today is a mood. Naledi Pandor, foreign minister of South Africa, was at a press conference standing beside previously mentioned Anthony Blinken, the mediocrity of the Biden administration. And she said, we no longer want to be bullied. She used the word bullied in front of the U.S. State Department secretary. I thought that signifies something. When the Indian foreign minister, when he was told that in the U.S. people are saying, well, India can be part of NATO plus. And what Jay Shankar said was interesting to me. He said, that's interesting. But he said, we don't want to participate in the NATO mindset, in the NATO template. That was the expression he used, the NATO template. Bullied, NATO template, not interested in. It's a new mood. Now, will this carry over? Is it deep? Is it shallow? Is it just about you know, jockeying for momentary interest right now, economic interests and so on. Has it any depth? Will it impact the culture of India, for instance, or the culture of South Africa? I don't know. But I do know that we are at some kind of inflection point. I often tell people, David, that we're not in a new period. We were exiting the period when the United States had dominance in the world. But we're not in a period any, in right now. We are in a sandstorm. We are in a period between periods. Things are not clear. So when you hear these kind of statements, it's wrong to assemble them all and say, well, now we are in a multipolar era or we're in this or that. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres released a report recently, the new agenda for peace, in which he said people are calling this the era of multipolarity. But he did say that the post-Cold War era is over. You know, this era from 91 till recently when the U.S. was in dominance. I agree with him. That, that period is over. I don't believe we're in a new period. I think we're in a period between periods. And those are always interesting because you're not sure what exactly is going on. And people who think they know everything, I'm not sure they are the most believable people. Yeah. Our topic is Africa from neoliberalism to independence. Where do you see uh, the cracks in that neoliberal economic structure, which is so dominant? Well, firstly, those cracks are not there in central banks. Those cracks are not there in economics departments, in Makarere University, 
in you know the University of Witwatersrand, in in the um, you know University of Tanzania, Dar es Salaam. This is not where in these spaces, central banks, economics departments, we are not seeing the cracks there, David. Not yet. Um, there we are seeing people persisting with the orthodoxy of neoliberalism. You know. Um, people who become finance ministers in most of the countries in the global south persist look at lula lula is sitting in uh, brazil in a i mean a cage match struggle with the central bank of brazil over interest rates because the central bank is controlled by neoliberals look at china you think the chinese banks people's bank of china are controlled by socialists or not a chance neoliberals they have it in their grip generations and generations of neoliberals so many of them trained at stanford university you know economics departments wharton school of business and so on and so forth this project you know what we called the chicago boys project in chile when milton friedman even friedrich hayek traveled to chicago uh, to chile during the coup years um these gurus of neoliberalism uh you know sent their boys chileans who were brought to chicago to train well it's not the chicago boys no it's a stanford economist chicago blah 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 but they are everywhere and there there's no crack yet they are still religious about their convictions about privatization and so on despite the fact that reality has gone against them now you asked where are the cracks the cracks are there i think to some extent amongst the business crowd why do i say that you know i look pretty regularly at credit suisse their global assessment at goldman sachs global assessment Black- blackrock has an excellent global assessment they have high quality researchers working for them to analyze moves in the global economy and all these major people who manage money basically are anxious that this strategy of privatization and finance capital is just not going to build the dividends that they need um that you do need to re-enter the quote unquote real economy make investments build things grow things um you know sell things and so on you can't just be selling buying and selling money uh, something deeper needs to happen and that hesitancy inside the upper ends of people who have to deal with real money you know because they are dealing with trillions of dollars which they have to invest in even though they have the advantages of scale they can see the problems i occasionally talk to people in that world try to discuss with them how they understand um let's say the basel project you know in basel there are these rules that keep getting written for regulation of banks and so on about leveraging and the amount of reserves they need to hold anyway so uh, those conversations that's where you see reality and where else do you see reality among the billions of people in the world that's the real uh, problem here facing many countries you know years ago when i was writing the poorer nations which is about the period after the collapse of the third world i found an excellent quotation from the president of the bank of america and what the president of the bank of america said in the ni- early 1980s was he said look we can't kill the patient what he meant was the working people of the planet got to keep them alive and he said that if you press them too hard they'll die or they'll revolt we have to go only so far before they die or they revolt you know um he was not in favor of mass extinction of the planet nor was he in favor of revolution anything short of extinction and revolution acceptable 
I think we are here now. That's why there's anxiety among upper level bankers and people who manage, you know, the world at that level. They see the problem. You know, you have in levels of hunger, inequality so high that people like the Bidens and so on have no answer to these questions. They're unable to engage them. When they call African leaders to Washington, D.C., they don't know what to talk to them about. You know, here are governments facing situation, 50% of the population under poverty line, a large number of people hungry, no uh, relief on debt, no relief on fuel prices. Uh, and you have nothing to say to them because the only thing you can say is, you know, keep your money sound, privatize and so on. In Argentina, there was a pre-election uh, for the presidency. A far-right-wing candidate uh, won one in three Argentines' votes. Okay, he won one in three. Far-right-wing guy. Okay, he also, by the way, used to be a tantric sex instructor. For you, David, you may be interested in that. But what's fascinating about his agenda is he went to the people of Argentina and he said, "What you need to make our economy grow is extreme austerity. We are going to have extreme austerity." And one in three Argentines voted for him. We're in a very strange situation in the world where people know there is no hope for them through austerity, debt, and so on. There's no hope for them. Inflation is out of control. At the same time, you can get megalomaniac politicians going out there and saying, I'm going to hit you harder in order to restart the economy. People are saying, okay, let's give that a try. That's why, David, we are in a period between periods. Well, fueling that anxiety, that sense of angst, has got to be the looming climate catastrophe. It's right in front of us. It's going to hit the global south the hardest. Well, you know, I was um, really very paralyzed watching the scenes from Canada. There have been 600 wildfires in Canada. Temperatures up to 42, 43 degrees Celsius. Uh, Tokyo, Japan had a sustained what the... World Meteorological Organization called Prolonged Heat Wave. And then Hawaii, you know, the destruction in Hawaii. Uh, already plans to build new hotels and so on. You know, destruction as mass gentrification. Scandalous. Well, the World Meteorological Organization, in the middle of all these wildfires around the Pacific, released a really chilling, chilling report, David, called State of the Climate in Southwest Pacific 2022. I found this chilling because they talked about how as a consequence of ocean warming, not just sea level rise, but well, they are related because as the ocean warms, the sea rises, not only because of the melting of the ice caps, but also warm water takes up more volume and so on. Anyway, if you read the World Meteorological Organization report, State of the, uh, of the Climate in the South Pacific, it shows you the level of destruction of coral reefs, therefore marine animal extinction and so on, it is ghastly to read that. And no movement on it. Not even much interest about it. You know, again, in Hawaii, the first thing they talk about is rebuilding. And then again, it's all this stuff about tourism. What about stopping for a minute and saying, wait a minute, it's not just Hawaii. There's wildfires in Canada, wildfires in Hawaii. You know, you put this thing together and all the experts are telling you this is terrible. You know, now I also don't go in the catastrophism direction that in five years, the planet is going to burn up and die. 
I think it's not exactly that. But for a lot of people, it's already burning up and dying. Okay, so they're not waiting. They're seeing it happen now. So I feel like there's something here um, that reflects the callousness again in culture, the sense that we can wait it out. Um, you know, if we are in a safe place, we can wait it out. Um, I'm sorry for the others that they are going to suffer, but we can wait it out. A sense of compassion and solidarity as a people on the planet is really diminished, in my opinion. Um, you know, people are sad about Hawaii and then they forget about it. So, you know, we've talked quite a bit about uh, Africa. Why should people here, I'm in Boulder, Colorado, you're in Santiago, Chile. Why should people here care about what's going on there? It's an interesting question. Firstly, people should learn to care about everywhere. Because in my opinion, the planet is now so intertwined. The question of the climate environment intertwines us. The question of the global economy and the commodity chain intertwines us. I mean, you know, you and I are talking via Zoom. We are using both of us computers. Many of the components in what unites you and me are from Africa and Latin America and then assembled in Asia. You know, for instance, the copper wire large, may, may come from Zambia or from Chile. I don't know. Um, there are uh, all kinds of rare earth metals in our screens that likely come from the Congo. Um, we are already, uh, you and I, part of a global story that includes the African continent and uh, and Latin America and Asia and, you know, everybody. I mean, that's the second reason why we're already, you know. But thirdly, politically, look, you know, the West has done a great job destabilizing countries in on the African continent, such as in the Sahel. Now these countries are standing up. Solidarity to them is really important. I think people are quite confused. They say, how can we defend a coup? You know, because they are thinking again, David, about, let's say, the coup in Chile against Pino against Allende, saying, look, you are against Pinochet's coup. How can you be in favor? You should be against, you should be for democracy. I agree. On principle, that's true. But we don't live in a world of principles. We live in a world of contradictions. And therefore, got to understand the contradictory situation in which people find themselves. Also, you have to understand an act of solidarity against, say, Western intervention into Niger uh, it should be very much axiomatic. But even more, you see, it should be clear that ECOWAS, the economic community of West African states, is not intervening on their own behalf alone. They are intervening on behalf of the French. They are The French are eager to Rwandaize the conflict, as they did in Mozambique, where they had Rwanda intervene in Cabo Delgado instead of French forces go directly. Um, this quote-unquote Africanization of imperialist um, maneuvers in the continent is now very clear for people to see. Why should people care about somewhere as far away as Niger? Because it's not that far away from you. Thanks very much for your time. You were just listening to Vijay Prashad on Africa, from neoliberalism to independence. I spoke to him in mid-August. Vijay Prashad is an internationally renowned historian and journalist. This program is produced by Alternative Radio. We're an independent nonprofit in our 38th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as Medea Benjamin, Noam Chomsky, and Chris Hedges. 
To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Vijay Prashad on Africa, from neoliberalism to independence, and for his book, Washington Bullets, CIA Coups and Assassinations, just call us, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to KGNU. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to CGSW's airing of Alternative Radio. For a full listing of episodes, head to the podcast tab on cgsw.com or search up Alternative Radio on the CGSW app. My name is Stinkin'. I love to eat trash, but even more, I love to listen to CGSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Shitty band from 2009 I-